Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you for braving the rain this evening, and uh, you're in for a real treat. Um, I want to welcome you to the Midtown Scholar. My name, as many of you know, is Eric Papenfus. Uh, I'm the mayor of Harrisburg and the co-owner of the bookstore, along with my wife, Catherine, who I think you met as you checked in. Um, we are honored to have you here for this special evening, and we want to give you a, a, a great thanks for coming to join us here at the Scholar. Now, uh, a, a few quick housekeeping notes at this time. If you could, please join me and silence your cell phones. Are we ready? Powering mine off. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Okay. <laughs> well, um, I'd also like to take a moment to uh, thank you, our audience. This is our last and final speakers program for 2019. It's truly been a memorable year of author events. We had our largest ever Harrisburg Book Festival this year. And we couldn't have pulled them off without uh, our devoted attendees and customers. It's been an honor to host these events. And it speaks to the vibrant literary community that we have here in central Pennsylvania that we're able to host so many of these great speaking opportunities. And we're already planning events well into 2020, so please stay tuned to our website, sign up for our social media alerts, and we'll let you know about some of the exciting authors that are coming in the new year. One quick preview, um, Yale historian David Blight is coming to talk about his Frederick Douglass biography in February, mm -hmm. and I know we had a lot of requests uh, for him, and we're uh, pleased that he'll be coming. Now, I'd like to introduce our wonderful speakers here for this evening's program. First, Casey Sepp is a staff writer for The New Yorker. Her first book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee, which is uh, available up at the counter, was an instant New York Times bestseller. She's a proud graduate of the Talbot County Public Schools. She has an AB from Harvard College and an MPhil from the University of Oxford, where she studied as a Rhodes Scholar. She was born and raised in the Eastern Shore of Maryland and lives there uh, to this day with her family. So we're pleased, we were very pleased earlier this year to host Casey Sepp uh, to a packed house, and it's an honor to welcome her back to Harrisburg. And uh, we hope uh, uh, you'll be sure to check her book out. It was one of our very favorites here at the year. Let's please have a warm welcome for Casey Sutt. <laughs> and our featured author for this evening is Sir Salman Rushdie. He is the author, as you know, of over 13 novels, including the Booker Prize winning Midnight's Children, Satanic Verses, The Moor's Last Sigh, The Golden House, among others. Rushdie is also the author of a book of stories and four works of nonfiction. A fellow of the British Royal Society of Literature, Salman Rushdie has received, among other honors, the Writers Guild Award, Author of the Year Prizes in both Britain and Germany, the James Joyce Award out of the University College of Dublin, the Carl Sandburg Prize of the Chicago Public Library, and a U.S. National <laughs> Arts Award. I know. Hey, there's so many honorary degrees. Let's just say, in June 2007, he received a knighthood in the Queen's Birthday Honors, and his books have been translated into over 40 languages. So, of course, the novel which we're here for this evening uh, is titled Keyshot, an instant New York Times bestseller. Keyshot was shortlisted for the 2019 Booker Prize and was named one of the best books of the year by Time Magazine. Rusty's latest shows a fiction master at his brilliant best. It's been called hilarious, extraordinary, and my personal favorite, an epic Don Quixote for the modern age. We are so very honored to welcome the return of Sir Salman Rushdie to Harrisburg. So at this time, please join me in giving him a warm Harrisburg welcome. feel we could probably spend the next hour just going on down the list of honorifics and honors and everything else. It's truly a pleasure to be here with you and I'm so grateful to the, the bookstore which um, is such an institution in Harrisburg and, and what a wonderful home for this event and I know um, a return for you as well. You've done Yeah, it's really here it's before. great to be back. I enjoyed it so much a couple of years ago that when they invited me back I immediately said yes, and thank you all, by the way. I saw you all out, out there in the, in, the, <laughs> in, the, in the cold and rain, and 
I would not have done it. <laughs> so, 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 so thank you very much for sticking around. I know they've endured the valley of the rain and the suffering in order yeah, to, exactly. to attend the event. Exactly. Um, well, well, let's get started then to, to say thanks to the folks who did queue up. Um, I'm sure if nothing else, everyone knows that the new novel is in conversation with Don Quixote, but I'm wondering, can you tell us more about its origins and some of the other books it's in conversation with? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, I had this, even when I was writing The Golden House, which was the last time I was here for that. That while I was writing it, I, I thought I now that was the second consecutive novel I'd written, which was almost entirely set in New York City. Mm. And I thought, you know, you have to leave town. <laughs> I thought, you know, next time you you can't be entirely contained within the two one two area code. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have to go somewhere, and. So I had this idea of a, a journey book mm. that, that, would, that would travel across America and, and see what there was to be seen. And then as it happened, coincidentally, I was asked to write something about Cervantes um, because it was 2015, I think, was the 400th anniversary of both Cervantes and Shakespeare. Mm. And and I was asked to write something about them. And so I, so I picked up, after a very long time, I, I picked up Don Quixote to help to reread it. And it immediately seemed that the book was telling me that, that this, was, this, was a, this was a way of approaching the kind of book I wanted to write. You know, mm -hmm. that, um, and that my, my versions of, of, of Quixote and Sancho Panza who are not really exactly like Cervantes's characters, but they, they cropped up in my head almost immediately. And so it was just a happy accident, really. I wasn't planning to write anything about a, a, a novel inspired by Don Quixote, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> Had you loved the novel before returning to it, or was that? I actually loved it more when I returned to it. Um, what had happened in the very long time in between first and second reading, was the arrival in English of much better translations. Mm. Uh, and that the, 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 the thing that had been the standard translation, the Penguin Classics translation, for a very long time was by a man called J.M. Cohen, and it wasn't that great. Mm. It was kind of dull. It didn't have, you know, the effervescent magic that you would expect from you know, the most famous novel ever written. And, and I remember reading it at university and thinking, kind of, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. you know, um, and then, I mean, now there's this brilliant translation by Edith Grossman, mm -hmm. um, which just brings the book to life. And you, and you, and you get it. You, get, you see what everybody, has, everybody reading in Spanish has, has always been able to see, you know. So yeah, the return was actually much more exciting than the original encounter. Mm. Well, it's kind of nice to know you could write such a beautiful book about a book that had not previously been in your personal canon. <laughs> and I'm wondering, you know, with that sense of a template, should we expect, you know, Robinson Crusoe in Manhattan, be. or you know, yeah, are yeah. you are you going to give us Vanity Fair of it Mumbai? Could be. Or, yeah, you know, I mean, Kutsia has already written Robinson oh, Crusoe. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, he's claimed <laughs> so, Crusoe. <laughs> so so, so I, I'll leave that to him. Um, but yeah, it was it it was a it was a surprise. You know, I mean, I. It, it's wrong to say that it wasn't part of my personal canon because I remember there's a there's a famous essay by Milan Kundera in which he suggests that the novel has two parents, mm. one of which is Samuel Richardson's Clarissa, out of which comes the realist tradition. And, and the other, he says, is Tristram Shandy, Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy. But I, and I actually had the nerve to actually say this to Kundera, who I know a little <laughs> bit, that I thought he was wrong about Tristram Shandy because Tristram Shandy is inspired by Don Quixote. Right. You know, they're, they're the characters of Uncle Toby and Corporal Trim in Tristram Shandy are deliberately and openly based on, on Quixote and Sancho Panza. 
And so I've always thought that, that really the other parent of the novel is, is Don Quixote. You know. It's just that it was a slightly turgid translation. Mm, sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm... The other thing that very interesting, well, we, we can stop talking about Cervantes soon, but <laughs> one of the things that, that was very interesting was when I was doing this work to write this essay about him and Shakespeare, mm-hmm. is that there is a lost play of Shakespeare's. Um, we only know its title because other people have mentioned it in their in what things they wrote. There's this play called Cardenio, um, of which no trace remains. Mm-hmm. And Cardenio is one of the most important secondary characters in Don Quixote. Uh, and the story of, Qu- of Cardenio in Don Quixote is exactly the kind of story that the young Shakespeare loved, which is all about star-crossed lovers, people, people thinking that somebody doesn't love them and therefore going off with somebody else who really loves the other person. And it's a mess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then it's okay in the end. Um, that's exactly what the Cardenio story is, and so it is quite, there was a translation into English of Don Quixote in the time of Shakespeare. He would have to have known about So it's yeah. quite possible that Shakespeare was inspired by Cervantes too. There, there's no evidence that Cervantes knew anything about Shakespeare, so it doesn't work both ways. Anyway. There we are. I actually think everyone here would be fine to have you continue to instruct us in a course on the history of the novel, but I feel <laughs> it would be actually, yeah. you know, kind of limiting th- our conversation because well, actually Keyshot is full of many contemporary genres too. There's there's basically, you know, a sci-fi plot, there's a spy novel, yeah. there is a road trip novel built into it as well. And so I'm wondering, you know, how do you manage so many threads when you're putting together a book like this? I, this is just the way my mind works. <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm sorry, it just is the nonsense in my head. <laughs> you know? No, I, but I wanted to write, one of the things about a journey book, a road book, you know, the road is a metaphor for life which is so old that it's older than the novel. Mm. You know, that it, I mean, you could go back to Pilgrim's Progress sure. and things like that, you know, where, where the journey, the, jour- the physical journey becomes also a metaphorical journey. Um, it becomes a journey from innocence to experience. It becomes a journey from birth to death. It becomes a journey through the stages of life, you know. And, and, um, and what it therefore allows you to do is to write a book it, which changes as it goes along. As life does, mm-hmm. you know, that, that our our own lives do that. That that we, the life we have, as a child, is not the life we have as an adolescent, and then our adult lives go through different metamorphoses too. And and I wanted to write a book which was like that, which which changed as it went along, you know. So yeah, you're right. There's a some of it. Well, one of the storylines is quite realistic in a way, mm-hmm. and and the other one is very surrealist, playful, um, and kind of metamorphic. So yes, it goes through all these forms. I just thought, you know, in the previous two books that I was trying, they're all these three books, Two Years, Eight Months, 28 Nights, and The Golden House, and this one, are all really attempts to get to grips with the insanity of the present moment, which just gets more and more insane. Yeah. Um, and, and they do it in very different, I mean, different, forms because two years eight months is really the kind of Arabian Nights fable mm-hmm. you know and and the golden house is is more realistic and in this book I thought I'm just going to try everything at once you know? <laughs> <laughs> like like every possible way of writing a book it's polite to say try you actually succeed I mean I'll, <laughs> I'll spoil it for everyone and let you know that he pulls it off yeah. uh, well, but quite beautifully by the end things you think might might never come together come together quite seamlessly. Well, it was very scary, is all I'm saying. It was very, because I realized what I was doing and that I showed it to my friend, Kiran Desai, who is a you know, Booker Prize winning novelist. I, I, I told her about it and she was very serious. She's, and then she said, oh, I see. <laughs> 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 she said, it's a high risk book. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I, I, I suppose so. And she said, no, because if you could do what you say you want to do, it'll be amazing. But otherwise, it'll be a fucking mess. 
<laughs> and she said, and there's nowhere in between. <laughs> so it was scary, yeah. Well, and and uh, I, I mean, there was a lot of the time that I thought I, that I wasn't sure that I would make it work, but, you know, there we are. Well, one of the things that's surprising is the degree to which, I mean, we've, we've talked about some of the literary influences that creep into the book and um, the books in which the book is in conversation with, but I was equally impressed by the way you handle contemporary events and, and the sort of rip from the headlines experience. So um, without giving too much away, you know, on the one hand, someone arrives in Barringer, New Jersey, and we feel like we're in an Ionesco play. People are turning into mastodons. Yeah. On the other hand, there's a chapter where there's a shooting in beautiful Kansas, and it will call to mind for people uh, another a real sh shooting. A real shooting. Yeah, well, that was, I mean, very, that passage, that moment of the book is very much, is based on on that real shooting, right. uh, which took town, a place in a town called Olathe in Kansas, which I discovered is a Native American word meaning beautiful. Right. And, and so because I didn't want to be entirely limited by the news story, you know, I wanted to be able to fictionalize it. Mm -hmm. I thought I, I wanted to not use the real name of the town and not use the real name of the people, you know, because then it's just reportage. Mm -hmm. um, but I also didn't want to completely fictionalize it, so I just changed it a little bit, you know. Um, but yes, I mean, they, I was very struck because I saw an interview with the, what happened was the crazy guy walks into a bar and shoots two Indian American men, um, one of whom died, one of whom survived. And, and um, they were like software engineers living there, um, working for the Garmin, you know, stuff that makes your GPS stuff for your cars, and, and, and I saw an interview with the widow of the, of the murdered man um, in which she, I mean, she was very articulate and she talked about how they had lived there for, you know, 25 years and they had raised their children there and they thought of themselves as local and American and then this happens. And she says, and she said, now it makes me think, do we have a place here, mm -hmm. you know? And I remember that sentence really stuck in my head, you know, and I actually have used the sentence in the book because it was very moving, you know, as a question about, about new immigrants in America, you know, and, and the book is about immigrants, you know, I mean, all, all the main characters are Indian American, mm -hmm. you know, and, and in one sense, it's an immigrant novel. You know? um, so, yeah, so some of it is very real, and, and the Mastodons, not so much. Uh, but <laughs> except, I don't know, New Jersey's a strange place. <laughs> <laughs> well, you take, you take a, a small news story like that and you build it into the novel, but you also tackle what are sort of the largest stories of our time, I mean, namely the opioid crisis and the yeah. role that the pharmaceutical industry played in perpetuating it. And I'm wondering there, too, you know, was that a collection of newspaper stories that sort of built into a plot, or how did you arrive at that well, part of the storyline? Well, it's two things, really. One, one is that I stumbled across the true story of an Indian-American crook, pharmaceutical entrepreneur uh, who made a very powerful version of fentanyl, but was a crook and therefore managed to start getting doctors bribing doctors, essentially, to prescribe these, these dangerous things to people who didn't have a medical need for them, mm -hmm. you know, and therefore contributed to the, the addiction. You know. so, so that was a real story. I, mean, I think he actually went to jail this year. Mm. Uh, he's a man called John Kapoor. And um, anyway, so one, one thing was just discovering that story. And, um, but there's a sort of sad, I mean, family thing, which is that my, my youngest sister died of an opioid overdose uh, 12 years ago. When she was, I mean, she's 14 years younger than me, but she, uh, so she was only 49 mm -hmm. at the time. But, and she wasn't living in America, she was living in, in Pakistan. Um, but I didn't know, you know, and I, I had no idea of the extent of her um, dependence, her addiction to, to these drugs. Um, not so much fentanyl, it was more like, you know, oxy, mm. oxycontin, Percoset, Vicodin, those things. 
Um, and so, of course, it was a huge shock in the family. Sure. Um, and it made it kind of personal to me, you know. And, and I started digging around then, you know, um, finding out about the Sackler family, you know, and, and Johnson and Johnson and all these different people. But it's taken me a long time to find the story that I thought I could use to tell the story. And, and, and so, yeah, I mean, this is 12 years that I've been sort of thinking about it. So some part of this book is very, very, very immediate, as we say, torn out of the headlines. And some of it is stuff that's been gestating, you know, for a decade. Um, well, and to that end, I'm so curious, you know, when you, when you share that part of your family story and then for folks who've read it, you can think about how it actually finds its way into the novel in this fictionalized way. Um, I'm so curious to know which of the characters you see yourself most in, because some of them are overtly autobiographical, and then, of course, there's one bearing a sort of pseudonym-like name. Yes, there's a female character <laughs> um, of a the talk show hostess with whom my crazy old coot falls in love. <laughs> Not that he's ever met her. <laughs> he's just seen her on TV. Um, and she's called, she's called Miss Salma R. Um, missing one... I see the resemblance now. It's, it's really, a, it's quite clear it's to a, me now that we're this close just, to it's one just another. A, it's yeah. just an extraordinary coincidence, really. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, there's also a writer. You know, I think if you'd asked me, I would have thought Sam Duchamp was yeah, probably... I don't, you know, I think I, I... There's a bit of me, there's very much a bit of me in the Quichotte character, mm. which is that he is ludicrously optimistic. Mm. Uh, you know, when he has no reason to be hopeful, he's hopeful. Mm -hmm. So there he is deciding he's going to cross America to win the hand of this, this lady on TV who, is, who he doesn't know <laughs> and, and who is extremely famous and powerful and successful and beautiful and young, none of which he is. <laughs> um, but that doesn't deter him in the slightest. <laughs> And he just he says repeatedly that he he knows that love will find a way, mm. and and that kind of ludicrous optimism. He's also ludicrously optimistic about America. Mm. You know, everybody he meets, he meets in a spirit of friendliness and openness, and expects that that will be the way in which people deal with him. And it isn't always, mm. which surprises him, but doesn't change his mind. You know, so, and people have people who, people who are allegedly friends of mine, uh, <laughs> <laughs> have have said to me that I am sometimes stupidly optimistic, especially given the condition of things right now. Huh. Um, so I thought I would take that quality and and just exaggerate it, sure. Exa exaggerate it colossally, and but I see that I see myself in him in that way, you know, um, and. It's like when I, if we can talk about my most important work, when I, when I had my, my moment on Curb Your Enthusiasm, um, <laughs> <laughs> there was a... I, mean, I can't I, believe that wasn't in the introduction, honestly, yeah, yeah. of all the things. You know, I, mean, I yeah, thought, really? Knighthood, I mean, you know. But the, one of the, I mean, I had a conversation with Larry David about his character, mm. in which he said, yeah, of course it's like me, but it's enormously magnified. Mm. You know, it's like me exaggerated colossally. So, I mean, I think he probably does have a bit of OCD and so on, you know, but, mm. but he not, not, not to anything like the degree that the character... So I, I thought, I mean, I did something like that. You know, I took something that I recognized as being me, but made it, blew it up. So is there a secret pseudonymous canon of Salman Rushdie novels that are spy novels that we can I always wanted to, you know, the thing is, I wanted to write a spy novel. I did, because there was a point of my life, which we don't have to go into a lot, um, <laughs> where I met a lot of spies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did. I met, I met American spies and British spies and a few French spies. You know, the French spies were all drunk. But <laughs> <laughs> 
No, sorry, French spies. You, you, you weren't really. Okay, um, well, we've talked about when, when, when the life goes into the fiction, but the question is, what about when the fiction goes into the life? Because I understand your sons still want to go on this cross-country road, road yeah. trip with you. Yeah, because it's one a of de Tocqueville-type book in the works, maybe, we yes. can look forward to. Well, one to. of the starting points, before I had the idea for how to write the novel, mm -hmm. I had thought, a couple of times I've thought that I wanted to do a road trip across America and just see what I could see. The first time was like when I turned 66, I thought I would go drive down Route 66, and I thought that, <laughs> and I thought that, that, I thought that might be, you know, that, and then I never did it, and I was always slightly disappointed that I never did it. And then in, in, these, in these times, I thought middle America might be a place to explore, mm. and it might be better to do it like on the road rather than in a, in a plane. <laughs> to actually physically be in the place, and yeah, and I asked. I actually asked my younger my younger son, who's now twenty two. This was a few years ago. So he must be eighteen or something. I asked him if he would go with me because I thought it might be interesting to have a younger generation's mm -hmm. eyes as well as as well as mine. And he said, "Yeah, he'd be up for it." And then he had like a comic pause, <laughs> and he said, "But Dad, are you going to drive?" <laughs> <laughs> I was really very indignant. I said, look, I, so I've been driving since before you were born. What are you talking about? And he said, no, I don't think you should drive. Um, and then he said that he would be willing to drive. And, and so essentially I fired him <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and wrote a novel. But they still both... <laughs> but, but it's like both my sons, him, him and his older brother, they, 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 I mean, who have actually read the book, I have to say, which my kids don't always read by books, but they have read this one mm. and enjoyed it. And they, and they say to me, we should, we should do a road trip. Well, I assume everyone here is in agreement with me that they should do the road trip. We would all yeah, be interested so in yeah. the, the So, outcome. you know, it might yet happen. It might yet happen. Well, another possibility, and I know you, you've done a little bit of um, writing for the stage and the screen, you know, so much of this book, we, we talked about Salma R, but she's actually entered the world as a reality television yeah. star, and so it's possible it's it's not a manuscript you all would produce, but rather a reality TV show. God. You know, Larry David would be in the backseat with the cameras, and you would take us around America. Yeah, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things I had to do, because, you know, in... in in Don Quixote and Cervantes's novel, he tells you on the first page, more or less, that Don Quixote is mad, mm. and that he has been driven mad by reading all this junk fiction, mm -hmm. you know? And so it did make me think that if he were around today, Cervantes, what would his target be, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, and the answer I came up with was reality television, which, you know, and, and so here you have this, this lonely old man. He's a traveling salesman. He's never been married. He has no children and spends his life going from motel room to motel room and watching appalling quantities whoops, of bad television. And I, then I thought, this is not really the kind of TV I usually watch. But if I'm going to write this character, and, and, and I'm saying that his head is full of this stuff, mm -hmm. then I have to know what that stuff is so that I can fill his head with it. I did go to Wikipedia and verify that all of these shows really exist and that quite but a lot of them have audiences larger than any novel yeah, of the yeah, last 100 years. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, so I you did your homework. It's I all did my factual. I did my yeah, kind yeah. of due diligence. You know, and, <laughs> and in the way that Cervantes says that Don Quixote's brain has been rotted mm. by reading... This, this, this romantic fiction. I could feel my brain rotting <laughs> <laughs> while watching, you know, Bachelorettes and <laughs> Kardashians and all of that stuff. And, and, and now I don't have to. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So, so we, here we are, you know, right, the romances of Cervantes' day were the brain-rotting tools then, and today it's reality television. And what was most interesting to me, you know, we've talked so much about the exuberance of this novel, but in its restraint, 
you know, obviously most people would characterize the president as the first reality yeah. television president. And he goes unnamed. And so much of the indictment of American racism and xenophobia is pitched as a kind of global phenomenon, not a particular affliction of the most recent cycle. And I'm wondering, you know, did you know all along you were you were just writing about, you know, a kind of... I didn't want him in my book. Mm. I thought, he's in our heads too much already. Mm-hmm. You know, you wake up in the morning thinking, what's he done now? Yeah. You know? And if you switch off the TV for two hours, you think so something happened, you know, because he's probably done something else. Right. You know? right. I just thought we have too much of him in our heads. And, and I did think, and I do think, about Mr. Trump, that there's a sense in which he's an effect and not a cause. Mm. Um, that the, the social phenomena that exist, and not only in America, the divisions in society, mm-hmm. um, the rise of xenophobia, it's not only an American phenomenon. You know, it, it's, it's also very much behind the whole Brexit thing. Right. And there's a rise of racism and, and anti-Semitism all across Europe. Um, and even in India, where I come from, there is now a, a rebirth of, of real communal hostility. You know, which which has which is get, getting. So what I'm saying is, it is a worldwide phenomenon, and I mean Trump is one of the leaders who has been very skillful at exploiting it, and and has uh, no doubt made it worse. You know, but didn't cause it. Right. You know, and uh, if if he were to disappear tomorrow, these things would still be there. Sure. You know, and 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 so I wanted to write about America, not about Trump, because sure. America is more interesting than Trump. Sure. You know, Trump is essentially not interesting. Huh. You know, I mean, he's, we are obsessed with him. But as a writer, I mean, he's not really a character. Mm. You know, he's a series of performances in search of a character. Well, I, I feel obliged to take you a, a, away from Trump, and um, we've talked about political influences and literary influences, <laughs> and I actually wonder, um, you know, so often writers are asked about, you know, the things they read and the people they talk to, but um, I'm wondering, I, I know that you recently lost your editor, Susan Camel, oh, yeah. and um, it's not often that, that writers get to share their experience of being edited or talk about that side of how yeah. books come into the world, and I'm wondering um, if you could tell us a little bit more about, you know, when a book like Keyshot is finished and it gets handed over, what yeah. happens to it and the people who influence it there? Yeah, well, we just, I mean, a few days ago, there was the memorial event for Susan in, in New York in which an enormous range of writers came to talk about her, you know, um, and I think it was a testament to her, her, her brilliance as an editor that she could edit with, she could instill complete trust in writers as different as, you know, Gary Steingart, Sophie Kinsella, Elizabeth Strout, mm-hmm. um, you know, me, Ruth Reichel, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and was able to kind of get into the skins of each in each of our books as if they were her book, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that kind of gift of like sympathetic magic, you know, being able to become the writer's alter ego, you know, and, and confidant, you know, is, is, I mean, very few people can do it. I mean, with, with Kishot, yeah, I mean, Susan, she read the book like six times, so she end, ended up knowing it better than me, and then she came over, and she sat in my house for seven hours, going through the book, like, in great detail, and Remember that she's not just my personal editor, she's the publisher of Random House. (laughs) She has kind of a big job. (laughs) (laughs) And yet during that seven hours, she never looked at her phone. Mm. She never saw if she had an urgent text. She never looked at an email. She never made a call. She was entirely just there Mm. for the book and for me. And every writer who was edited by her has the same experience. That, you know, that um, she was like 100%. Mm. Um, and so you learn to trust her, you know. And then she'd send you, she'd said, she'd, we'd go through it. Then she sent me a copy of the, her marked up manuscript. And there are marks on every fucking page. <laughs> 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 and, and 
<laughs> and she starts off saying, you don't have to do any of this. You, know, you don't have to do anything, which is very comforting <laughs> and not true. <laughs> so, um, and her, she wrote her, her notes in very faint pencil, mm. you know, and in basically illegible handwriting. <laughs> so I, I had to quite often use a magnifying glass to make the letters bigger so I could work out what the words were, which meant you had to really concentrate. Mm. <laughs> and anyway, yeah, listen, she was, she was a brilliant reader, and even when you didn't agree with her, you had to really think about it, mm. you know? Um, and just to have somebody who would read your work so carefully that everything they said was worth thinking about, mm. you know, and uh, is, is, is a great gift to a writer. And I've there were two chapters in particular in the book where she was worried about the timeline in one of them and she thought it was too scrambled. And in another case, she was worried about one of the characters who she thought would not think like that or wouldn't have that kind of knowledge. Um, you know, she just said, mm -hmm. I think you're, you're giving the character more than the character should have in the way of information. Mm -hmm. and, and in both cases, she was completely right. Mm -hmm. you know, and I unscrambled the timeline and I re revised the character and the book's much better for it. You know, and so, yeah, I mean, it would not be the book that it is if it weren't for... If it weren't for her, she was your Italian-speaking cricket. She was my, she was my Italian. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll know if you haven't read the novel soon enough who that is. There's, there's a. <laughs> the thing is that the, the 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 character, my Sancho, is not like Sancho Panza. He's actually a teenage boy, who has been, in a way, like in the way that, in Pinocchio, in the way that the woodcarver Geppetto makes a child out of wood, and then the child wants to be a real child. Um, Something similar happens in this book where, where Mike Quixote brings Sancho into being by an act of will and magic. And then he is desperate to be a real human being. And he is helped in this by a talking cricket. <laughs> Speaks Italian, of course. <laughs> you know, of course. <laughs> and that's because if you can imagine the impossibly ancient time before Walt Disney, <laughs> there was an Italian novel called Pinocchio uh, by Carlo Collodi in which there is a talking cricket who's called Grillo Parlante, which means talking cricket. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought I would have him instead of Jiminy <laughs> with his stupid hat and, um, <laughs> and, 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 and umbrella. You're you getting know. a sense, though, this is a tremendously beautiful and rich and just erudite and playful novel that... I'm sure you so, all So it's not up, just yeah. Don Quixote, it's also Pinocchio, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think that, that now we, we're going to take some questions from the audience. Okay. Um, so hopefully you've been thinking of things you'd like to ask. All right. First off, can we give a round of applause for Salmon and Casey? <laughs> So at this time, this is one of our favorite parts of author events. We're going to do an audience Q&A. So if you have a question, feel free to raise your hand. We'll try to do a few here on the main floor. Then uh, David has a mic up on the balcony. So if you have a, a question on the balcony, we will get to the balcony at some point here. So who's going to start us off? Right over here. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I wonder if you would share with us the theme, the role of forgiveness in your works, and if you will, in your life? Oh, in my life, I need it a lot. <laughs> but, but, no, I mean, one of the things that the book, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, actually, because one of the things we haven't spoken about is that the book has a lot to do with, um, with, what, with, with what goes wrong inside families, you know, and, and with loving relationships which are not, which are not romantic love, which are father, father, son, mother, daughter, brother, sister, relationships and, and, and how those can become estranged either because of physical distance or because of something said or imagined to be said or done or imagined to be done, you know, which, which creates rifts uh, inside these very profound and intimate relationships. And, and, and one of the things the book 
tries to look at is whether those things can be healed, what is the role of forgiveness, and uh, or are there things which are unforgivable? Uh, um, and so in the in the book, there's Kishot. The Kishot character has a, an estranged relationship with his sister and and a complicated relationship with the child he has brought into the world uh, by magic. And and then there's a second storyline which we haven't mentioned. Which it, it, there's a second storyline which is, to put it simply, of the author who has written the Kishot storyline, that isn't me. Um, and he, in his life, we begin to see is that the issues of his life are things he's transforming into fiction and working out in fictional form because he also has a problematic relationship with a sibling and a problematic relationship with a child. And so these things work themselves out in parallel and, and they don't all go the same way. Some of them work out better than others. So, but it allows me to get into the subject of of families and 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 how we are inside families and how they how it can go wrong and how sometimes it can go right again so, and I think I mean I think everybody's families are like this you know uh, I mean I remember when I was at when I was at university uh, at King's College Cambridge that the president of the college was a famous anthropologist called Edmund Leach and and he gave a series of lectures on the BBC which became very scandalous because they were on the subject of the family. That was their theme. And his opening sentence, the first lecture, he said, the family with its narrow privacy and tawdry secrets is the source of all our discontents. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't go down completely well. <laughs> but I've always remembered that sentence, you know, from, this is from like 1967 or something. Um, and, and I'm interested in exploring the subject of love when it isn't romantic love. Mm. You know, so uh, these other kinds of love that we have with friends, with family, etc., which are in many ways as important as any romantic love that might come our way, you know, so... Romantic love in the novel is is this crazy story of Kishat and Miss Salma R, you know, which is an absurd romantic love, which is treated as it should be treated comically, you know. But but these other relationships are not treated comically; they're treated more seriously. Other questions on the main floor? Yes. Um, hi. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I sorry. I did think about this. Um, speaking of the xenophobia in the world today, I was wondering if you could share a little bit of your ludicrously optimistic vision of the future. I know I would appreciate it right now. And also perhaps the role of literature, both of the past and the future, in that yeah. endeavor. Well, the, the point about... My optimism is that it is ludicrous. <laughs> so, so, so I wouldn't want you to draw any conclusions from it. Um, because there's another bit of me which is quite pessimistic, which is a more natural thing to be maybe right now. But the thing about literature, I think, is an interesting question. And again, one can't speak for... I mean, literature is such a broad church that you know, one can't speak for all of it. You know? I can only think, say some things about what I think. And what I think is that we are at a moment in which there's an extraordinary assault of the idea of truth. Mm. You know? um, and, um, and, not, and again, not just from the occupant of the White House, but you know, if, if you go on the internet, you find side by side websites which are valuable and websites which are absolute garbage and it's sometimes hard to tell them apart because they both exist with equal weight you know, out there. And I think people are, I mean, the, the, the people's dislike of what, of what they saw as being the mistakes of the mainstream media preceded Trump, you know, it was long before him. You know, and, and, uh, and yet the, the places where people were getting their information were often much more suspect 
than the mainstream media which they were, which in which they had lost faith. You know, so, so when when you have a situation where, as a culture, we have grown confused about the nature of the truth, you know, um, or even if such a thing exists, that's something which people can exploit, um, and and is being exploited. But I deeply believe that the the function of literature, all good literature, is to move towards the truth. It doesn't matter what techniques are used. It doesn't matter if this is social realism or surrealism or whatever it might be. The purpose of literature is to say this is what human beings are like. We are like this. Um, we, this is how we are with each other. These are the worlds we make. This is, this is, this is reality. You know, this, and, and I think what this wonderful act of reading and writing does is that the writer and the reader make a kind of contract mm -hmm. in the act of reading in which if you like the book, you essentially accept that yes, this is, I, this is what it is. This is how it, things are. You know? If you don't like the book, then you don't like the book and it doesn't have that effect on you. But the magic of, of the act of reading, not just of the act of writing, is that you can, through the act of reading, gain some kind of traction on the idea of the truth. You know? and, and, and it may be a thing that the reading of books can offer at the time as confused as the present. You know? and then it's just a question of does the writer do it well or badly, and if you don't like them, then read another book. You know? um, but on the whole, just read mine. <laughs> and mine. Yeah, and hers. <laughs> that's quite beautiful. I mean, is that, that's the covenant for you. That's, yeah. that's when you think about your audience, when you think about putting yeah. these books in the world. And I think it's become more difficult because, you know, in the great age of the realist novel, mm -hmm. in, in the, let's say, 18, late 18th, 19th centuries, I think there was more of a kind of agreement between, in society about what, how the, what the world was like, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so the, the, the writer could assume, like Stondhal, Balzac, could assume that their readers would see the world in much the same way as, as, as they did, you know? And, and on that agreement about reality mm -hmm. is, is built the foundation, that's the foundation of the realist novel, you know? And, and now we live in a moment in which that agreement no longer really exists, you know, in which reality has become something that we argue about, you know, that, that, that is, you know, one man's ceiling is another man's floor. We have great disagreements about the nature of the real. And so that foundation doesn't exist in the same way, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what do you do about that? And I mean, one of the things you do about that is write a novel which comes at the truth from 17 different directions. <laughs> you know, to try and get there. But I think what you can't do, at least what I feel that I can't do, is to write that kind of old-fashioned realist novel mm -hmm. because that was based on assumptions which no longer obtain, you know. Um, and in this more fragmented world, you know, you need to come at it differently. Mm. But that doesn't mean that you don't do it. And as I say, if you do it right, then, that, then the reader will still, or some readers anyway, will still feel that yes, this is telling me the truth about, about how things are. And I do think that that's the purpose of all writing, otherwise why bother, you know? Mm. I'm not interested in, f I mean even the great fairy tales, I, I was gonna say I'm not interested in fairy tales, but I am interested in fairy tales. Because the great fairy tales contain profound truths, mm. you know? Um, and so it's not a matter of technique. You could come at this through many doors, you know. Um, it's a matter of intention. Mm. And, I, and I think the intention of literature is to say something truthful about human nature and about human society built out of human nature. And I think that's why, that's why we can read the literature of other parts of the world. We can look at a 16th century Japanese novel and we can recognize the characters because human nature is the great constant, you know. We're, Human beings are human beings wherever we are, you know, and, and so that's it. End of lecture. We have a question on the stairs, and then we'll go up to the balcony for a couple questions. Um, hi, thank hi. you. 
I noticed that you mentioned two distinct traumas in your a family trauma in your sister's death and the trauma of the shooting that took place in in Kansas, and um, it occurs to me that even in the sort of obscuring of the truth, there is an element of sort of that gaslighting mentality of like what is reality, and I'm wondering um, what you feel the relationship of your work and literature has to say about how we process trauma and how we release obscured truth? Well, I mean, it's sort of what I've been saying, you know. I mean, I think, um, I don't think literature acts as therapy. You know, I, 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 do, I think it's asking it to do something which it's not designed to do, you know, to, to, to ask it to work in that way. I certainly don't myself use it in that way, you know. I don't write novels in order to work out my problems, you know. Um, sometimes problems get worse as a result of writing the books. That, that's, that's happened at least once. <laughs> well, it sort of happens. <laughs> well, and it happens to Sam Duchamp within the novel. He goes yes. to try and solve. Yes, I mean, yeah. the thing that's. The thing that I hadn't expected about this novel was that I would write about a writer writing a novel, mm. you know, and because I've always kind of disapproved of, you know, what is now called metafiction, you know, mm. books in which a writer writes a book about a writer writing a book about a writer, you know, and I just think, don't do that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and and then I kind of found myself doing it, and I was very uncertain about it. I thought I might not keep it in the book. I gave myself the permission to explore it, but then if I didn't like it, just to take the whole thing out, you know, um, because it wasn't part of the plan of the book. I, I thought the book was going to be about this crazy old fool and his, his, his sort of mutinous teenage kid and their journey across America on this impossible quest for love. You know? And I thought, that's enough for the novel to be. That's plenty, you know. And then this other thing of this, about this writer writing this book and and working out his own problems, you know, showed up. And in the end, I liked it because, first of all, because it, sho it shows, I, th I think, something about how the act of creation works, how a personal situation can be transformed and become another thing mm. um, in, in, in the work that is being made. And also, I liked it that the two storylines are written in very opposed manners, that, that, you know, that the author's storyline is written very naturalistically. Mm. You know, and, and, and the Quichotte storyline, which he is theoretically writing, is written very playfully and surrealistic in its, in its manner. And, I, and yet they're, they're confronting the same kinds of themes, you know, which we've been talking about. Um, and I thought to tell a story in which you can show that you can write about the same kind of themes in two very different ways, and what, is that, what does that show us if we put them side by side? Mm -hmm. you know? that, that's what I thought I ended up, that's why I ended up liking it. I'm sorry, I haven't answered your question because, uh, because I, uh, the question of trauma, as I say, I don't think, I don't think literature is for that. You know, I think there's, there are other kinds of work that help people deal with trauma. Um, and, um, I, I certainly wouldn't think that anybody feeling traumatized by the world we live in will find much reassurance in my work. <laughs> um, because, the, because the horror is there, you know? And, uh, the way in which I dealt with it, I suppose you could say, is to write, is to write comedy. You know, that's to say, Instead of writing a kind of bleak novel about how awful everything is and then it gets worse, it's, it's, instead of that, it's funny. And it's funny about things that aren't particularly funny. And that's what we call black comedy. Um, and the point about black comedy is it's still comedy. It still makes you laugh. You know? uh, I mean, one of the things you mentioned, the mastodons. You see, and the mastodons, as, as you rightly said, find their point of origin in UNESCO's great play, Rhinoceros, in which in this small town in France, people for no reason apparently are turning into rhinoceroses. And 
And I, when I was 19 years old at Cambridge, I was cast in a production of Rhinoceros. <laughs> and, I mean, not in the lead or anything. I was just one I was of the... say, were you Berenger? No, I was one of the... Ta- you know, there's all the... It's fast, you know, so people are running on and off stage all the time. And, and I was one of these... One of the townspeople, and every time you ran off stage, somebody in the wings would stick a bit more rhinoceros on you, you know, and then you'd come back on and you'd be more rhinoceros than you were before. And I remember, age 19, not really understanding the play and, and saying to the producer, you know, what's this about? And he kindly said to me, he said, Salman, it's about fascism. Mm. And I said, how? (laughs) (laughs) And he said, it's about what can happen in a community or in a country when suddenly your neighbors seem monstrous to you. Mm. The people living next door to you seem to you to have become monsters. And, and they, they speak a language that you can't speak to them in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and they're scary to you. And, and yet, these are the people whose children were playing with your children the day before yesterday. You know, um, your neighbors have become so alien from you mm-hmm. that they seem frightening. And I remember thinking, a, that it was a wonderful explanation, but B, that what was brilliant about the play is that although it was about actually something very dark, it never stopped being funny. Mm-hmm. You know, the entire play is conceived as farce, it is played as farce. Mm-hmm. And yet what it's telling you is something very serious. And, and then I thought, you know, maybe in some way we're, we're there again. Maybe we're again in this world where we are so divided from each other that people, some people seem monstrous to us. Our neighbors seem monstrous to us. You know? and, uh, and then I thought, I can't hide rhinoceroses because he has rhinoceroses, so, so I'll have mastodons because they're also funny. <laughs> <laughs> and as far as I know, not at present in New Jersey, but, but you never know. Um, up, we're up here. Uh, yeah. Hello there. We have a question here. Hi there. I'm but a humble reader, but I have found literature to be therapy. Question for you, though. You seem to reference your own trauma of perhaps 30 years ago with the Satanic Verses. Mm. Watched you walk in today, seemed pretty safe as you came in by yourself. Where do you stand in reference yeah, you to don't, this? You in don't 20 look dangerous to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was laying low. <laughs> Where yeah. do you stand today with reference to this in 2019? No, it's all, it's, that, that's all, I mean, it's really been a long time since there was a serious issue. It's been like 20 years or so, you know, so, uh, I mean, so, as far as, you know, security and all that, there hasn't been any of that for more than 20 years. I think you're underestimating Alex, who works at the bookstore <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. security he provides to any author, really. Yeah, well, he's, <laughs> a, he's a killer, you know, yeah. so, so I wouldn't, wouldn't cross him. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, truthfully, it's been, a, it, it's, it's been such a long time that it feels like, I mean, it feels like an earlier chapter of my life, you know. I mean, to put it simply, The Satanic Verses was the fourth novel that I published. It was the fifth book, one nonfiction book. This is the 14th novel mm. and the 19th book. So, you know, most of my life as a writer has come after that, you know, and... Uh, and so it feels like a book that I wrote 31 years ago, you know. And I have, I mean, I'm I'm proud of it, you know. I think it's I think it's as good a book as I could write. Um, but I wrote it 31 years ago, and I've done a little work since then, which I'm more interested in, probably because, you know, writers are always only interested in their most recent book <laughs> because they want you to buy it. <laughs> so. We. Have- We have time for maybe one more question. We have one more up here to your left. Yes, sure. Thank you. I'd like to go back to the question of the different genres in your novel, if we could. Mm. I'm curious if you were seeing a kind of parallel between the, the movement through America in the novel and the necessity then of different genres and voices and styles to match a kind of 
movement across space, yes. especially given the kinds of conditions and dynamics yeah, no, we've that's been right. talking about. I mean, that's right. It's not, the only thing I would say is that it's not so much a geographical thing. You know, it's not that I felt I had to write about Kansas in one way and, and New Jersey in another. It's not that. It's that, it's that on the stages of their journey, there are mood shifts and there are shifts of what is important and so on and that that it seemed to me could be represented by by these kind of formal uh, differences because the thing about Kishot's journey in the novel is that as he ex he explains to his son that yes it's a physical journey they have to travel across the country but it's also in some way a spiritual journey because for him he knows that if he is going to have a shot at the impossible love he feels he has to make him prove himself to be worthy of her. And that means he has to, he's very interested in the idea of being better. Of, and so he sets himself, you know, the classic um, mystical journey of seven valleys. Mm -hmm. uh, but these are not literal valleys. These are, these are as, in a way, tests or challenges that he feels he has to pass or overcome. Um, and so during the course of the novel, he goes through these seven phases, you know, and they're written about differently uh, because they're different kinds of experience. Because you know. um, I do think, the thing that I said before, I really think that one, one of the ideas of the, of the novel as a journey is that it corresponds to life, and, and one of the things the book is very interested in is, is mortality. You know, is is life as being finite and having an ending? You know, and and um, and our lives change. Our lives are metamorphic. They're not always the same thing. You know, and um, and I wanted the book to represent that. You know, so can we give another round of applause for Casey and Salmon? <laughs> You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.